More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Hey, welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. What else do you have to do besides listening to podcasts right now as we're all being quarantined for the lovely coronavirus? My goodness, I do. In all seriousness, I hope that everybody is staying safe and staying healthy. And I know that this is a little bit of a crazy time right now. Trust me, I'm feeling the craziness. But you know what? I keep reminding myself it is temporary and things should be back to normal soon. And at least we'll all have this uh, very strange memory to look back on. Uh, And, you know, we've got a lot of time on our hands, it seems. And so why not listen to some of your favorite podcasts, especially if you can learn great things from them. And that's what I've got coming up on today's podcast. I'm really excited about the guest that is going to join me. Uh, Sandy Phillips Kirkham is her name. She is an abuse survivor and an author. And uh, she's written an awesome book that we are going to chat about on the podcast. But before we get to that, while you're bored, quarantined at home with no toilet paper and an overabundance of canned goods, why not use some of your free time to leave a review of the podcast? If you listen on iTunes, you you can review there, give it as many stars as you think the podcast deserves. And if you go ahead and write a review, in addition to doing your star rating, that review is going to make it very easy for other people to find the podcast. The more people that rate the podcast and the more people that review the podcast, the easier it is for people to find when they search for podcasts. And so if you have some time on your hands and you want to just write like what impact this podcast has had on you, how you feel about it, however stars you think that it deserves, that would go a long way toward helping more people be able to find the Survivor Sanctuary podcast. And that is the goal for as many people as possible to be able to to find encouragement and healing as they journey through healing from childhood sexual abuse. You can also, as I mentioned every week, join our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, and you can post in there any questions, comments, concerns that you have. You can continue the conversation after you listen to a podcast. If you want to know more about somebody's story or a question that you had wasn't answered, you can post it there. Just search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook, and you can request to join the group. And I just have it set to private so that we can all have those uh, kind of difficult conversations that we have sometimes. Uh, This week we had some questions that uh, were of a delicate nature and I was able to post them in our Facebook group and have people answer and give advice. And it's so awesome. You guys are amazing. Can I just say that if you're part of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, you are awesome. And I love to see the comments and just the care that everybody gives everybody else in that group. It's so awesome. So join us there, Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook, and I will add you to the group. Well, without further ado, I want to introduce today's guest. Her name is Sandy Phillips Kirkham, and she has written a book. It's called Let Me Pray Upon You. 
Breaking Free from a Minister's Sexual Abuse. And in this book, Sandy tells her story of being sexually abused by her youth minister starting when she was 16 years old. And uh, she's got a very powerful story. I'm so excited that Sandy is on the podcast. Sandy, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today on Survivor Sanctuary. Thank you. I'm so glad that you've come onto the podcast to share your story with our listeners. I know that a lot of them, unfortunately, are going to be able to relate to your story. And to start off, I kind of just like for our guests to introduce themselves. Let us know a little bit about you before we dive into your story. Well, as you said, my name is Sandy Phillips Kirkham. I am married with two grown children and two very adorable granddaughters, um, two two semi well behaved dogs. Um, I'm a nurse. <laughs> I'm a nurse by trade, but I haven't practiced for a while. Enjoy gardening and um, have just spent the last two years writing a book. That's awesome. So your book recently released and I am going to link to your website so that everybody can check out your story. You have a lot of information on your website, which is good as well. Plus people can find your book there. Let me pray upon you breaking free from a minister's sexual abuse. So Sandy, I I would like for you to just share your story with us and uh, let us know about your story of surviving abuse. Okay, well, in 1971, uh, at the age of 16, my youth pastor, who was 30 and married with two children at the time, kissed me uh, after a youth group meeting that was held at my home. He waited for everyone to leave. Um, Then he stopped me in my hallway and began telling me how much he appreciated all I was doing for the church and how helpful I was in his ministry. And then he slowly took my face and placed it in the palm of his hands and bent down and he kissed me, not once, but twice. And I I stood there absolutely stunned. I I didn't know what to think. And and my first reaction was, well, what is he doing? Uh, You know, he just kissed me and and not on the cheek. I I mean, he kissed me. But um, trying to calm myself, I thought, well, this is my minister and he wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And I just thought, well, I misunderstood. And to my 16-year-old mind, this was the only way I really could rationalize it. So over the next year or so, he made a habit of kissing me or hugging me at different times. It wasn't constant, but it was. It occurred over a period of time. And then it started increasing where he was, every time he was with me, he would either kiss me or hug me. But then it would take about another year and the kissing escalated to finally having sex with me. And that sexual relationship continued for four years. I wasn't his first victim. Uh, Shortly after being hired at our church as a youth minister, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. When he was confronted by our elders, he didn't deny it. He admitted that what she had said was true, but he begged for forgiveness, said he was sorry, promised it would never happen again. And no information was made public or given to the congregation about this accusation. Less than six months after that, that's when he kissed me in my hallway. Eventually, after four years of this sexual activity with him, his actions were discovered. At first, the, con- the elders tried to suppress the information. They wanted to keep as many people as possible from finding out, but that effort failed as rumors began flying and people were questioning what was going on. So he was asked to give a confession to the congregation, which was very vague and um, gave very little detail. In fact, his confession basically was, 
I'm a man of God, but I'm also a man who sinned against God. I've sinned against my wife and I asked for forgiveness. That was his confession. So a lot of people weren't even sure what he was saying then. But the important thing about that is that confession, two days later, he had me meet him in a hotel room. So it wasn't a true confession. So he was eventually moved to another church. And then three months after his going away party, he was given a going away party and people were sad that he was leaving, but he left. And three months after his departure, I was called in by two elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. Mm. And I will tell you, as I sit here, I am, it's hard for me to recall that moment of all moments in my life because I loved my church. I was very active in the church. Um, I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. It was really my life. And it would be no exaggeration to say that if the doors of the church were open, I was there. It was, I love serving God. I loved being in the church. And so being told that I was no longer fit to be in that church was horrifying to me. And honestly, I would say the reaction of those two elders and being told to leave the church probably had a greater impact on my life throughout my life than the actual abuse may have had. You know, I wasn't given any biblical counseling. I wasn't offered any help or any support. I was told just to leave. And it told me that he could be forgiven, but I couldn't. It told me that he could get a second chance. And actually it was a third chance, but he could be given a second chance and I couldn't. It told me that I was dispensable and he wasn't. And so that part of it really had an impact on the rest of my life and how I viewed my spiritual life and church as well. So that's, that's all of it in a very much of a, of a nutshell. Uh, he was a very dynamic individual, very charismatic. He had, his sermons were very intriguing and very good. People flocked to the church to see, see him and to hear his sermons. He took our youth group and really changed the dynamics of it. We went from boring Sunday school lessons to interactive group discussions that were more, you know, uh, pertinent to teenagers of that time. And while he was similar to our former pastor, youth pastor, he, he dressed younger. He drove an orange VW convertible. He went to football games. He kind of engaged himself with the kids. So I guess in the vernacular of the 70s, he was just hip. And um, so he had a whole different persona about him as well, which lent it to being people were just drawn to him because of who he was. Right. First of all, it's heartbreaking. Just, I mean, the story of, of being groomed and uh, groomed for abuse and then to be abused by him the way that you were. And what is just particularly heartbreaking for me and a theme that we run into over and over again on this podcast is the church's response. Um, right. Initially, the fact that he had done this to someone else and had they made that public and had they been upfront with the congregation about what had happened, could that have prevented anything from ever happening to you? Right. Um, that's so, so heartbreaking to me. And we see it over and over and over again in churches where, oh, you, you did this terrible thing, and but you've said you're sorry and you've cried. And so we're just going to restore you and not so worry I about, you know, other people. Well, and, and I talk about this in the book um, a little bit about the church tends to want to deal with sexual misconduct from the moral aspect. 
but it's also a professional violation as, as well. So the yes. church wants to respond by relying on the teachings of the scripture of forgiveness and judge not lest you be judged, or we all sin and fall and short of the glory of God, or he was without sin. All of those verses, they rely on those. And so a repentant pastor certainly can be forgiven, but that forgiveness is not a pass to ignore the ethical and the professional violation that's been committed. You know, society will recognize that a, a sexual relationship between a doctor and a patient is an abuse of that profession's power and position. That doctor has taken advantage of the professional position to exploit someone under his care. And so that same standard should apply to pastors as well, but it doesn't. We, we tend to look at it only as a moral failing and then go to the next step of, well, if he's repentant and changed, then we need to forgive him and return him back to his position as a pastor. And really, the goal of restoration and forgiveness should be to restore that pastor back to Christ, not to his job. Right. I mean, a, exactly. a church treasurer found guilty of stealing from the church funds may be forgiven, but you don't return him to the position of the custodians of the church funds. They miss that mark of the professional violation as far as it's not just a moral failing. Exactly. No, it's, it's so true. If he were a teacher in a, a public school and we've had guests on the podcast before who were abused by Christian school teachers. And if they had been abused by a, a public school teacher, that teacher would have lost their job exactly. and they would not be working right. with children ever again. And yet the church doesn't seem to come to that same conclusion. And, and second, you mentioned People view it as a moral failing, but we have scriptures also that talk Absolutely. about the disqualifications of, of a pastor or an elder, and it just seems like we gloss right over those. If somebody is a gifted speaker and people flock to them, then for goodness sake, it must mean that God has called them to preach, and who are we to say that they shouldn't? Right. In James 3.1, I mean, he talks about a stricter judgment for those who teach. I mean, it's very clear. It's a stricter judgment. You're held to a higher standard because when... A person in a profession, whether it's a teacher, a counselor, a doctor, whatever, the standard has to be higher because the pain and devastation caused are greater when created by a trusted professional. I mean, exactly. it's the removal, and it's not just uh, removal is not about necessarily about punishment. It's a, to protect and maintain the integrity and the confidence that we justifiably place in those we have trusted with our well-being and with our children. You know, you walk into a church, you, there is an automatic feeling of trust that these people here are going to care for me or going to help me. And certainly the church welcomes those who are in need. We welcome those who are hurt and need help. So when they come to the church, we cannot allow then their pain increase by having someone sexually abuse them. Right. Unlike other professions, congregations have a personal relationship with the pastor. He's the one that's baptized their children. He's, he's performed their marriage ceremonies. He's counseled them when those same marriages fall apart. He sat at their bedsides as their mother was dying. So it's difficult for them then to see this person who has committed this horrendous act. So that clouds their judgment in addition to wanting to just see it as a moral issue. But the integrity of the profession depends upon the code of ethics being enforced whether you're a pastor, a teacher, or a doctor, or, or a counselor. Right. And I think that it's, like, it's sad to think that it's probably going to come down to law 
and right. not scripture. It's going to come down to what the government tells churches that they are obligated to do in, in those types of situations. Uh, because I don't think that the church is going to listen any other way. And, and I say that because we see the same things happening over and over again. And it's interesting that you mentioned that if, if someone were embezzling money and they were the church accountant, that yes, they can be forgiven, but no one is going to hire that person to be the church's accountant. No. And what makes me really sad about that is that it's 100% true and it just reminds me of the scripture where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Mm -hmm. And it shows that the church the church's treasure is more in money than it is in human beings. There's a, a chapter in my book called Spiritual Wounds, and, and I would like to address this part of, of clergy sexual abuse because any abuse is horrific and, and, and damages lives and changes lives. But when it involves a, a member of the clergy, whether it's a rabbi, priest, or pastor, whatever, any spiritual leader, it takes your spiritual life and it twists it and it contaminates everything around that spiritual life. It touches the very soul of a sacred part of your soul. So for me, attending church is difficult because it, it creates some trigger factors for me. Prayer is extremely difficult for me. Um, I couldn't pray for a very long time. And so I didn't. I just I just couldn't do it because I, I had reminders of his prayers. So when we talk about what clergy abuse does, we need to remember that it takes away a, a very sacred part of a person's life. So I, I often say they not only rob us of our spiritual life, but they rob the church of our gifts and our talents and what we could have given to the church. Now, many victims will sometimes find their way back to the church and oftentimes find the spiritualities even better and greater. Some victims become atheists because they they don't they've connected God with their abuse. I'm somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Um, I have a spiritual life. I, I have a deep faith in God, but I have a difficult time with the tangibles of my faith, like spiritual things that are related to the church in the, in this in that church building, so to speak. You know, so for most people, church is a place of renewal, healing, and a place to be uplifted. And it provides a sense of belonging and, and trust and, and, and rituals that, you know, connect us to God and to each other. And we cherish, you know, what those rituals represent, like, you know, communion or reciting the Lord's Prayer and right. singing the hymns that were all. But all of those things were tainted for me. So I always ask the question, where do victims of clergy abuse turn and how do we seek help from the church when our pain is a direct result of the church? and what it represents, and the horrible reminders of what happened there, and our inability to trust again. Our souls have been ravaged by a wolf in sheep's clothing under the guise of being a trusted pastor. And that's, that's, it's, a, it's a wound that's hard to heal. It's a, it's a wound that's very hard to heal. It's, it's a theme. And, and one thing I think that is particularly wounding is that in churches where we've been abused by clergy or we have these reactions to our spiritual lives or, or things in the church that can trigger us, like not only do we have the abuse to deal with and the, that original, you know, violation, but the secondary violation to me is when some Christians don't understand the fact that we experience that. And right. there's no excuse in their eyes. It's like, no, you just, you know, God is good and church right. is good and you should just suck it up and, and be okay. 
the number of times I've had people say to me, oh, if you would just come to our church, it's different. Or you won't feel that way in our church. And, and I, I, I try to help them understand it's, it's, it's not a particular church or the way it's, it's just that it's church. And I have a hard time, you know, for 27 years when I attended church, I took my kids to church. I, I, I could never pray with them. I, I, I'm very sad to say that my children never had a bedtime prayer with their mother. And I will always regret that, but I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. But I wanted them to have that experience of church. I wanted them to have a faith-based. And so I took them to church, but I, I, I never could participate in, in any way. And I shut out any prayers. I shut out. I just, I, I was like a robot sitting in church. And, and I don't think anybody would have known that. You couldn't have been able to tell. But that's how I functioned in church for 27 years until I finally had to come out and, and finally talk about my abuse. I was forced to by an emotional eruption that said, this has got to stop. You're going to have to talk about this now. You know, in, in the first chapter of my book, I talk about the trigger factor that set this over the edge for me that I finally had to reveal the secret that I've been hiding for 27 years. Um, and it wasn't easy because drilled into me by my own abuser was, you know, don't ever tell. And if you tell, you'll be responsible for what happens and no one's going to believe you. And that was for four years. That's what I understood and what I believed. And so even at the age of 49, when I finally decided that I was going to reveal this secret, I can remember thinking I shouldn't be doing this because I'm going to get in trouble at 49 years old. I was still afraid wow. of being, of getting in trouble. Um, that's the lingering of his voice in the back of my mind telling me don't ever tell. Um, and it took me probably, even if the first time I spoke about it, I would say almost two years before I really felt comfortable and talking about it without the fear that I may get in trouble for this. And when people don't understand that, you know, there's always the question of, well, why would you wait so long to tell? Like, why don't you tell right away? If it happened to me, I would tell immediately. You know, people mm -hmm. don't understand mm -hmm. that, that it is so ingrained in us. First of all, I think just from the personal shame that we have, just right. without anybody even telling us not to tell, we right. kind of know inherently, I exactly. can't tell anybody this because it's so shameful. And then on top of that, when you have people threatening you and telling you all these horrible things that are going to happen to you if you do tell. And for that to linger until you're 49 years old, that says something about the deep impact that has. Oh, and I honestly, I was going to my grave with this secret. I, you know, I feared sometimes there were times when I think someone's going to find out or I'd worry about it. And then I got to a point around, you know, my mid forties or whatever and thinking, oh, you know what? i I've gone almost 20 years and no one knows. And so I think this is going to work. I'm going to get there. And then all of a sudden, I think God said, I got a different plan for you. Yep. you. You need to let go of this. And so it, it was difficult to talk about it in the beginning, but it has been healing as well to do that. And certainly writing the book helped tremendously. It was difficult to write the book because it's one thing to tell someone I was sexually abused by my youth pastor but it's another than to write down in detail and describe it and to talk about it. And, um, but as I said, it was also healing to have to be able to do, be able to do that. I mean, the book isn't just about the abuse. My book is about, it's about healing. It's about hope. It's about advocacy. I want victims to read the book and be able to see a piece of it that says, wow, that that's just what happened to me or wow. I, I can do that too. Or I didn't know anybody felt the same way as I did. I mean, I, each story has a, can resonate in some way with a, a particular victim. And that's what I hope my book will do because it's not just about the abuse. It's about 
how you can overcome the abuse. It's about the steps I took, not that they are steps every person should take, but they're the steps I took that helped me on my journey. And maybe those same steps can help someone else. I also hope the book will be, as you, as you said earlier, that uh, to give a greater understanding to those who still don't quite get it. Um, right. I think a lot of people who expressed me after reading the book that it, it did give them a better understanding. And that, that to me says, helps, says a lot to me because that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And I really honestly think this book should be in every church library because what better way to understand the dynamics of clergy abuse than to hear it from a victim's perspective. It, it's, it's the only way we're really going to say, oh my, we do not need this to happen again in our church. When you see the devastation and you finally get the pain and you understand why we wait to tell and you understand why we couldn't say no, all of those things will help people to say, okay, this isn't just about a man making a mistake or a man who just happened to fall into sin. It's it's more than that. And it needs to be to a point where we say, we're not going to let this happen in our church. No, I agree with you 100%. I feel like church libraries should be stocked full of books just yes. like this. Well, um, and they're, and they're, they're, I'm not, you know, my book's not unique in a sense. There's plenty of authors who, who've talked about this issue. And, you know, Marie Fortune, I'm sure you know, is, you know, the leader in this field. And the, the ministry that I volunteer for is the Hope of Survivors Ministry. Their website is a, just a, a wealth of information. So the information is there. I think it's a matter of people accepting it and wanting to read it. And, you know, now my, my abuser is still a minister. Um, and, mm-hmm. I confronted his el- his elders. I confronted his boss. I went to his national leaders with my story and, and my concerns that he remained in ministry. And um, it well, it's, there's a lot involved in what happened and where it went. But you know, their attitude was, it doesn't matter. It happened 27 years ago. Um, we think he's a changed man, in spite of the fact that he admitted that he was a sexual addict and. I sat there and I thought, is this, is this what we want for our pastors? I, I mean, it just right. blew my mind, blew my mind. But that's where we are with a lot of church leadership. It is. And we just hear the stories over and over and over again. And, and I hate to say that because I never want for anybody to think that their story is just one of like a billion stories floating around because every single person's story is heartbreaking and it's something that should never have happened. And it makes me just absolutely crazy that churches are doing the same thing over and over again in regard to perpetrators and right. restoring them to, not only to the flock not only restoring them and saying hey you're, you're okay with god and you're okay with us but hey it's okay regardless of how many lives you've destroyed that you continue to be a minister and to to shepherd people like that to me is literal insanity well and for example so when my senior pastor and the elders were aware of that first sexual misconduct in his first church when they were told and he admitted to it when they decided that they were going to give him a second chance what they were in essence were doing was giving him a second chance to reoffend so yes. basically they were saying to the congregation not literally but by their actions saying to this congregation We're going to give this man a second chance and risk each and every one of you in this congregation so that he can have his job back. I became, 
I don't believe that God meant for me to be collateral damage so that a man could have his job back. And that's what it was. It was basically saying, we're willing to take the risk. And churches shouldn't be in the position of risk management. This isn't about, well, he might do it again. If he doesn't do it again, he may. This is a breach of a trust that cannot be trusted again. They have proven by their own actions that they're not fit for ministry. Uh, And a truly repentant man would recognize that. Exactly. Instead of begging for his job back. I had one uh, pastor say to me, he said, you know, I'm a little offended that you keep referring to us as, as a job. He said, it's not a job, it's a calling. And I said, well, I think you get a paycheck. I'm sure there are some guidelines you're expected to follow. I'm, I'm sure you're expected to show up on a Sunday morning and preach every Sunday. If you just decided you didn't want to do that, I think they would probably say to you, well, you know, we need to find someone else. It is a job. It is a profession. Yeah. Um, it's a profession and it needs to be treated as such when those standards such as sexual misconduct within it you know a stockbroker found guilty of inside trading he loses his license he's never a stockbroker again there you know there's always standards to be followed and i i just i'm I'm like you i cannot understand why these men are are given these chances over and over and over again and if we do view pastors and pastoral ministry as a calling and not a profession, then shouldn't the standards be Even higher, higher. Mm-hmm. and not lower? And, and mm-hmm. we use mm-hmm. that excuse, mm-hmm. oh, it's not a profession, it's not a job, so therefore yeah. Yeah. we're going to lower the standards way down. Like if this is really a calling from God and, and it's all about him, then what does scripture say about someone being qualified to spiritually lead others? Well, and I also kind of chuckle too when I some when church leaders will say to me, "Well, because I've spoken to a lot of church elders and leaders, and they'll say, "Well, you know, what can we do to prevent this?" And they all want to they they want a list. So you know, I'll say, "Well, you know, there's always the idea of a, a background check, but that's going to be your weakest link because sexual misconduct, unless it's reported, it's not going to show up in a background check. It's it's just not. So yeah. you know, that's not going to help. Not a bad idea to do it." but it's not, that's your weakest link. Then you can talk about how you don't counsel women alone and you don't, you want to put a window in the door. All of those things I think make churches feel better, but the real issue and the real problem is the number of spiritual leaders found guilty and then who are returned to ministry. Um, If you want to prevent this, each time a pastor's found guilty, he's removed. That's, that's, that's it. And, And I understand that it's sad that they have you know, lost their ministry. I understand that they have squandered their talent that they, but that's on them. That's exactly. the result of their behavior. Exactly. And we that's can feel the sorry that for they them. make, you know, mm-hmm. that's the choice they make when they decide to sexually abuse a child or to sexually abuse anyone in their care. Any, like, right. It's a choice. They are the shepherd of the flock. And when the shepherd becomes the wolf and devours the sheep, they're no longer fit to be the shepherd. It's, it's that simple. Um, and I think the Bible's very clear on that. It's, and again, it's not about punishing these people. It's, it is more about saying the integrity of the church. And it says to the victim, this is how seriously we take this. You know, how, how do you think I felt when they said, oh, we're going to give him a party and we're going to send him to the next church. And right. three months later, I was told to leave the church. So people said to me, well, would that still happen today? Because that was so long ago. It does still happen today. I talk to victims all the time and and people are aghast at at that. And I said, no, 
I wish I could tell you it was different, but it's not. You know, one woman said to me, well, they didn't really tell me to leave the church, but I was called into the elder's office and they said to me, now you're more than welcome to stay, but because of the situation, it might be better if you did find another church. So they may not be as blatant about it, but it still happens. And it's the victim is, it's easier to cast out the victim than it is the pastor. And so they take the easier route. And that sounds, I hate to say that, but that's what's happening in many churches. No, it is. It's, it's happening. And, and the one area where I see, I see things starting to change a little bit is where churches are realizing that the more they do that, the more they're opening themselves up to financial loss, like from lawsuits and, and similar things or, or bad press now that people are being so vocal about it, which also equates to a loss of income. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if, if people see that bad press and they don't go to your church, they're not going to give their money. And I hate to sound cynical, but that's just the bottom no. line. When you hit them at their wallet level, it seems to make a difference. Well, and and you think, well, why is why is that? But I, I, I don't know if churches have been so used to being in control and having their own autonomy. I'm not sure what the reasoning behind that is. But you're right. The defense the first time is we had no idea. We didn't know this man had a history or we... This is the first time we became aware. You have a defense then. The second time, you have no defense. Um, and I think that's hurtful for me in, for, in my situation. My elders and my senior minister knew he had done this before. They knew and they did nothing. And I became his next victim. I don't, right. I don't know how church leadership is willing to say, look, we'll give him a second chance. And then if he does it again, yes, then we'll remove him. What do you say to that septum victim? How do you how do you justify putting her at risk that second time? And maybe right. they don't see it that way, but that's what they're doing. That's what they're no, doing. It's, that's exactly what they're doing. And it just that it, that's heartbreaking because one person you find out one person has been victimized. One person being victimized is too many, and the just blatant disregard for anybody else who could be abused by that person. It's like they, they regard this, this pastor or this minister, uh, with, they regard him obviously greatly in order to give him the opportunity to go back and do the same job and to not tell anybody what he's done. I absolutely love what you said, Sandy. I think that I've never heard it put this way, but your remedy for like preventing this is definitely a zero tolerance policy. Like if you do this once, we're telling everyone from the right. police to every person in our congregation, and you will never minister in our church or our denomination again. It needs to be set up front. You know, that when that person's hired, you, 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 you tell that pastor, we take this seriously. And so here's, this is what we're going to tell you up front, not after it happens or when we suspect anything. I mean, I think that's the other problem. When churches start to deal with this only after it's happened. There isn't anything, like you said, a policy up front that this is how we're going to respond. Um, and, and you're right. That's what needs to be done, that this is going to be our policy, that we don't tolerate this behavior. And so, too often the church is waiting. We're just reacting to the information. Like we're reacting to these situations. And I think that people are becoming aware that this stuff is happening a lot. And so that it needs to be addressed, but we're still not kind of getting ahead of the curve and addressing it up front. 
not like we should that that's correct but you're right it is it, we're more aware of it i think the education is out there um and and the other part of this is victim speaking out has has been a, a help to the right. this cause because as long as victims remain silent they were protected and that's not happening anymore it's it's we found our voice and like it took me 27 years to find my voice but i found it and I felt, you know, that it was what God had led me to do, that this was my time to do this. And and that's what I've done. I've, I've tried to take something that was horrific. And I, I knew that my story was important. Um, I knew that my story could help someone else. And so it, it's it's why I tell my story. Absolutely. And and I think you're you're so right, like victims coming forward and giving a voice to their story and, and kind of getting the word out. It, it's letting churches know, like, we can't just let this stuff go. Because even if they don't tell tomorrow or the next day, at some mm-hmm. point, it's going to come out, it's going to be public. And thank God for social media, because that's helping us a lot. Absolutely. Um, but I, I love to see people who find their voice and start sharing their stories. And, you know, not everybody's going to like it, especially not church leaders who have covered up sexual abuse. Right. They're the ones who like it the least, the abusers mm-hmm. first, and then probably mm-hmm. second, the mm-hmm. church leadership who's mishandled it. But it is what is necessary in order to, to create change. And again, I think that it comes back to kind of hitting them in the wallet. Like, it seems that churches were willing to bury their heads in the sand until like people started filing civil suits. Well, I had an idea. I said, what if we could petition the government to say any church that hires someone with sexual misconduct in their background loses their tax exempt status? Exactly. They'd be dropping those guys like hot potatoes because they can't exactly. lose their tax exempt status. <laughs> um, so true. All of a sudden, well, he's, he's now he's a hindrance to us <laughs> um, financially, but you know, I mean, there's part of me that would still hope that there is a movement based on it's the right thing to do. And I, I, I so that's why I think victims explaining and trying to sh- show and tell their stories of how devastating this is and what it does to our spiritual life, that there'll be someone who will be touched by that enough to at least start looking at this situations, these situations in a different way. Because it, exactly. it, it is, it just... It is a lifelong, it never goes away. It, it, it changes your spiritual life and it takes you from a place that you once had found such joy and peace to conflict and pain. And right. that's, that's just for people who want to help other, the churches to be Christ-like, sexual, clergy sexual abuse is so far from that. It, it's horrible. It, it's the opposite it of, of what it you're called to do, shepherding mm-hmm. sheep and protecting them and, and leading them and guiding them toward the Lord. You're doing the opposite of that. And I, I just, I have this conversation, I feel like a lot, but there's this, you know, mentality that when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. And if something horrible happened to you, then, you know, you just got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it and move on. And I, I agree. Like, I love that, that you've taken this, you know, this story and something that definitely had every reason to break you and you're now speaking out and you're being a voice for so many people who don't have a voice. And I think that's amazing. But as you said, there are effects on our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, physical lives, even that don't ever go away just because 
we have, you know, found a way to, to have our stories have like some sort of positive impact on the world. That's great. Um, But we still struggle with the effects of abuse in our lives. And so when, when someone talks about it being lifelong, you know, I, and then, or people say, well, you know, you, you just haven't forgiven him or you need to forgive. Um, that, that's not, no, that's not my problem. <laughs> I, when I talk about forgiveness, that is my choice, whether I forgive or not. Now, I eventually did forgive this man only because I was tired of having him still be a part of my life. As long as I didn't let go of him in a sense of forgiveness or unburdening myself from him, he was always a part of me. I was still trapped with him. So he became like a non-entity to me. He's a part of my story, but I don't allow him then to control me like he once did. And, And that took a long, long, long time to get to that point. But for me, I wanted to live the life that I was meant to live, not the one that was created by the damage done by him. I wanted to go from victim to survivor. Um, I wanted to be out from under his shadow. And I can only do that if I finally just said, I'm not going to get justice. He's not going to ever be sorry for what he did. And he's not going to get the damage that he's done. So I had to figure out how do I move on from that? And I had to just finally say, I've got to accept that I'm not going to get that justice that I deserve. And it wasn't easy because I wanted justice and I wanted him to get, you know, I confronted him. I I hired a private investigator to find him and I found him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him and I so wanted him to understand what he had done, but he didn't. And, And that was probably an expectation that I shouldn't have had, but I just so hoped that he would. Instead, I, I, he talked about how he had an alcoholic father and that's why he, the way he was. And if I knew how his life had been, I would feel sorry for him. Everything was about him. Um, and the only thing he could ever say to me was he looked at me in the meeting and he said, not for my sake, but for yours, you should forgive me. And I I thought, you know, he, he doesn't get it. So Forgiveness is on. not for you. It's for him. He's no. the one who did the wrong. Yeah. He's the one who needs forgiveness. <laughs> and so I had to move on from that. And, and that's what I did. But it, it doesn't mean that I remain silent. My forgiveness of him does not mean that I remain silent. Do you find you run into it. people, Christian people who believe that forgiveness does mean silence? Absolutely. Um, why do you keep talking about this? If you had forgiven him, you wouldn't keep talking about this. You're, it's still too much a part of your life. And i That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is turning over the hurt and the pain to God. Forgiveness is saying, I want my life and live my life without this person who abused me in my life now. And it's not about, in fact, he actually accused me of that. He called me after I had spoken and said I was emotionally blackmailing him. And he said, well, you said you were going to forgive me and now you keep talking about it. I mean, it's not that's not what forgiveness is about. It doesn't buy silence. Um, right. And this is my story. If, if, if he wanted me to speak better of him, then his behavior should have been better. He's only right. in my story because of what he did. They make these yeah. choices and then they, you're expected to you know, not mention them because it makes them look bad. Well, I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> something you think about before you do the horrible Four. things mm-hmm. that you did. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, that's where I am. I'm in a good place. I'm, I took me a while to get here, but you know, it, it's, it is what it is. And so now I need to live my life based on my past 
but not let it define my pet, my future. Right. And that's really that to me, that's a really hopeful message. Um, because I think that when we first begin to really dig into our stories and really kind of unpack the impact that they've had on us, we feel like we go backwards a little bit and you have a lot of people telling you that in order to be healed, you have to just move on from it. You have to move on from it. And, um, sometimes we can feel that despair and it's awesome to know that there is healing and there is hope on the other side of it. But it sounds to me like just your healing and your, your speaking out are, are correlated in a very different sense than people think that they should be. Because to me, for instance, like the more healing that I've had in my own life and in my story, the more, the more that I've overcome, the more outspoken I've become about what I've experienced, because I know that God is using that story to help other people. Right. And it is healing to be able to say the words, to write the words, um, because it's the shame that keeps them in. And we have right. nothing to be ashamed of. I, you know, I, I, if I could say anything to a victim, it's just, there is nothing that you did or didn't do that caused this to happen to you. This was done to you. And anything that you, it's not your fault. There was nothing you could have done or should have done that would have changed anything that happened to you. And so when victims carry that guilt around, it's part of the shame and why they don't want to talk about it. And so just even saying the words is helpful, I think, at least it was for me, um, to be able to finally say, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. I didn't have an affair with a married man. I was sexually abused. I was taken advantage of by someone in a position who was to be my spiritual guide, someone who was supposed to help me and love me. And instead he used me and, and that's what was done to me. And so it's, there was nothing I could have done or should have done that would have changed the outcome of what was done to me. I was in a vulnerable position. I was a, a teenager. And, and this goes for adult women as well, because if you're in a vulnerable emotional state, you don't think as clearly, you're not responding the way you normally would, your coping skills are not what they would be if you were in a healthy place. And so when someone who's supposed to be helping you takes advantage of that vulnerable position, then no, it's not your fault. You, you had every right to expect that that person who was there as a professional to help you would remain ethical and would remain within the boundaries of their profession. That's their job. You weren't there to help them do their job. It's always their responsibility to maintain those boundaries. Absolutely. Sandy, your story is, I mean, it's first heartbreaking and second, very, very hopeful. And your voice, I think, is is so important for survivors and for people who, who are at risk, I'll put it that way, um, in mm -hmm. churches where where churches continue to just like basically recycle these pastors that are abusing, whether they're abusing children or whether they're abusing adult women, like they're just constantly being recycled in, into new churches and new positions. And as though changing their location is somehow going to make them stop or if, preying on or people. If they take, or if they take a year off, I mean, that's the other thing. Well, he, he was out of the ministry for a year or out of the ministry for two years. I'm like, so that does what, um, you know, this has to be a zero tolerance. This is behavior that we cannot tolerate within the ministry. It's as again, I, I sound like a broken record, but you go back to any other profession. There aren't excuses made. There aren't second chances in every profession. There is a code of ethics and a standard that we require. And once those are broken, you've lost that privilege of that profession. Absolutely. 
I'm, I agree with that a thousand percent. And I, I think that so many more leaders in churches uh, need to hear that as well and, and just need that message kind of hammered in where they don't mm-hmm. seem to be getting it that it is not your right to be a minister. It is not your right to preach. It is not your right to shepherd the flock. It is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely guidelines that you have to follow and you can disqualify yourself. And once you have, just stay out of the pulpit. No one's saying you can't go to heaven when you die. No one's saying you can't be forgiven if you want forgiveness and if you're truly repentant. But what we are saying is, you have no place in church ministry or Christian leadership when you have done these things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely none. Mm -hmm. Goodness. Your story is awesome. I love your voice, Sandy. I think that it is, it is, I'm sure you've already helped many people. And I know that our listeners are going to be so grateful to have heard everything that you've had to say. I want to remind everybody that your book is called, let me pray upon you and they can find a link to your book by visiting your website, sandyphillipskirkham.com. And I am going to- book is also to... Uh, on Amazon as well. Ooh, on Amazon as well. Yes. My favorite website of all time is Amazon. <laughs> it's, a, so it's, it's Kindle and hardback. Oh, awesome. So I will definitely link to your website and a link to your book on Amazon uh, in the show notes so that people can read more. And you've got a lot of really great stuff. I think I said this before, but I want to remind everyone there's some really great stuff, great resources on your website. So everyone should definitely check that out and uh, check out the book, Let Me Pray Upon You, Breaking Free from a Minister's Sexual Abuse. Sandy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Sandy Phillips Kirkham. And once again, her book is Let Me Pray Upon You, Breaking Free from a Minister's Sexual Abuse. You can find her at sandyphillipskirkham.com. And I'm going to link both to her website and to her book in the show notes. So you can check out uh, all of the resources she has on the website and uh, you can read her book as well. There are so many elements to Sandy's story. Like I probably could have chatted with her for three or four hours and not gotten to all of it. So I'm so grateful that she has a book that we can read to find more details on the story of what happened to her and how she came to confront her youth pastor and now the work that she is doing to help others heal and to speak out as an advocate to help churches understand the need for them to take seriously allegations of abuse and to stop allowing perpetrators a second chance to abuse someone else. Again, her website, sandyphillipskirkham.com. You can find more there. And I'm going to be diving into that with you uh, around the same time. So maybe we can kind of compare notes and have a little book review of sorts on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group if you have the opportunity to read her book. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Everybody stay healthy. Everybody stay safe. If you're listening to this podcast like four years from now, maybe you're going to chuckle and think, ah, the coronavirus, that was nothing. But if you're going through it in real time and you're listening around the time that this podcast releases, you know that life is a little chaotic and crazy right now. All I have to say is be kind to elderly people. Share your toilet paper. It's going to be fine. Uh, We're going to get through this together. Have a great one and I'll catch you back here on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. 
Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.